Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, where I sort of have given a similar introduction the past um, several weeks. The nation of Israel is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Um, we often say they're looking you know, across at uh, Jericho. We don't know specifically that Jericho is in sight, but I mean directly across the Jordan River is the promised land called the promised land because the Lord has promised it to them. And they're going to cross over and be victorious and conquer the nations and take possession of it. Um, this is the doubling or the second, the deutimus, the Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. And the Lord is doing this because there is a portion of the nation uh, that weren't even alive when God gave the uh, law the first time. That first generation has all passed away. Some of them were alive but were extremely young. And so um, most of them have not uh, experienced uh, being delivered from bondage. They haven't experienced, uh, you know, coming through the Red Sea. Uh, they, they, um, like I said, haven't experienced the giving of the law, the receiving of the law by the nation. So Moses is giving a recount of their history and a recount of the law and then explanations of application and judgment from the law. And it's significant because they're going to have to go into the land and live according to the things that are being relayed to them right now. So when you look at chapter 7, verse 1, and it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and he has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Now, from particularly these chapters, those outside the faith, will often review these chapters and say this is evidence that God is you know committing genocide that that he has you know some kind of xenophobic nature about himself he hates and despises these other nations and that you know the nation of Israel has a similar conduct well it's important to understand that all of these nations belong to God he has created them, he has raised them up, he has given them opportunity, and in particular, he has given them opportunity to repent. When Abram and uh, his children were being promised this land and then sent into Egypt, the Lord specifically outlined that these nations were not ready for judgment yet. It's a strange thing for the Lord to say. More than 400 years previously, 
God is saying, I'm going to have to judge these nations and I'm going to do it by sending Israel in to displace them. The reason that God is doing this is because they have become so dire in their behavior towards the nations around them. They're destroying themselves and destroying everyone within their proximity. They're killing their own children as part of their idolatrous worship. The prophets have gone to them over and over again, forewarned. God has tried to steer them away from this behavior, and they continue on this very perverse, destructive course. So now the Lord is sending Israel in to judge them, keeping in mind that God is going to use these nations to discipline Israel for the same thing. He, he forewarns them, you're going to drift from me, you're going to fall into idolatry, you're going to be sacrificing your own children eventually, and I'm going to send nations against you who are going to correct you, discipline you, and take you into captivity. God is in control. This, this isn't a matter of some kind of hatred God has for humanity. It's in fact love, right? Uh, the scripture lays out that God disciplines his own children. And just the group of people last night, and uh, we were having the discussion about uh, a particular individual. I was a young 20-something-year-old father, and our oldest daughter, Christian, was pretty wild. And she was little, and we went over to their house to visit, and a bunch of people there, when we came in, I'm looking around the house saying, wow, your home is not childproof. And the wife says, what do you mean? And I said, all these trinkets and toys all right down. I mean, you got porcelain decorations everywhere. And she says, yep. I say, well, like, how did you raise your boys, man? I mean, clearly this. And she said, no, that was all right there. And I said, really? How did you keep your children from destroying it all? And she looked around like I was stupid and then said, I said no and smacked their hand. That was news to me as a young father. And I went over home and overhauled our whole practice of how we corrected our children. And wow, wouldn't you know it, it worked. <laughs> the word no and firm, physical, not abuse, firm physical correction. God loves us. And this is why he sends these things into our lives, right? We whine and cry and wail. Like we're going to be destroyed in the process. Read through. If you've got a, a, you know, I recommend using biblical software, your computer, your cell phone. You know, word searches are great that way. Just take the word, the, uh, you know, occasions uh, in Proverbs and, and type in discipline. Uh, that, that's the best one. You can also just type in beating. <laughs> You'll get almost the same number of results. Because Proverbs talks about beating your son over and over again, right? And, and I mean, in our modern culture, you know, we equate beating with abuse. It's talking about physical correction. There's an old statement. Maybe you've heard it. It says, fathers, 
beat your sons every night. If you don't know why, they do. <laughs> those of us who have been sons or those of us that have raised sons know, right? There's a need for correction. I'm not talking, listen, don't beat your kids. I'm not encouraging that at all. Correction, discipline. Guys, we live in a culture that can't say no. Just lets kids get away with murder. Literally. This is the culture that we live in. Proverbs says, beat your sons. The deep blue of the bruise will cleanse his soul. The beating will not kill him, and you will save his soul from hell. Wow. Remarkable. Okay, again, please don't beat your children. But don't shy away from the physical correction. The physical correction is necessary. Okay, no. Do you have a relationship with the Lord? Has he spanked you? Yes, he has, right? All your hands should be in the air right now. If you have a relationship with the Lord, he has spanked you. And it has hurt. It hasn't been easy. And it taught you things that are irreplaceable. The nation of Israel here is being sent in to discipline and correct nations which are utterly destroying everything in their environment, themselves and everyone else around them. Some of us can really identify with that. Destroying ourselves and everything else around us. Anyone who has proximity to us got to experience the pain with us. It was a horrible state. Verse 3, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, for they shall turn your sons away from following me. This is not racism, right? This has to do with belief, not race. God's intention is to create one race, that all of the races would live together and be intermingled, right? He says, in fact, there's only one race. The scripture says there's only one race. There's only one blood, right? That's, that's what the word of God says. To think otherwise is racist. There's only one race. It's the human race. The issue is the idolatry. God is doing his best to spare the nation of Israel from the idolatry of the other nations. You intermarry with them, and you're going to become idolatrous, right? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. It's, it's so interesting that right after they cross over into Canaan and begin to conquer these nations, right? Jericho goes down first. What is the one name associated with Jericho that most of us know? Rahab, right? Rahab the harlot. You turn the pages and you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. Rahab and Ruth both mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Right? Ruth is a Moabitess. Again, the Lord specifically forbids their marrying the Moabites. But it doesn't have anything to do with their race. 
right? It has to do with their religion. And when Ruth repents of that and comes home with her mother-in-law and converts to the faith of the Jews, she ends up being in the lineage of Jesus Christ. I say to you that the reason that the Lord allowed these two names and others to be included is to prove the point that he's not racist. Right? This is his son's bloodline. He made sure that we understood he doesn't have any animosity towards the other nations. It has to do with their worship. Right? He's trying to keep things pure in regard to worship. Put your bookmark in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This theme is very prominent in the scripture. Not just one location vaguely stated. It is very prominent. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, looking at verse 14. Paul says... Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now listen. Imperative command. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 is what you're looking for. And the imperative command, do not. Right? We have many other locations where the Lord gives suggestive thoughts to us. Who tells us things that were left to determine for ourselves and to understand with greater depth. There are many occasions where the Lord specifically says, you must do this, you shall do this, or you shall not do this, or you must not do this. Imperative commands. Here, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's talking about both business and marriage. I, I've, I've seen people do both things. They're, they're like, no, no, that was just talking about marriage. You know, this investor who's going to invest in my business, that's not what the Lord was talking about. Or the other way, no, no, the Lord was just talking about business there. It wasn't specifically covering marriage. So I'm going to go ahead and marry this individual even though they're an unbeliever. Listen, unequally yoked, there are a few ways of looking at that. What the Lord is relaying is the idea of animals that you would plow with. You put two ox into a yoke and they pull the plow. They pull the cart. They do the work. You never would put two different animals in this, you know, you never take the ox and put him in the yoke and then bring your donkey out and put him in the yoke also. The imbalance is going to create big problems. The way Paul is saying this, it's actually more dramatic. It's the idea of here's the 2,500 pound ox and here's your 95 pound goat. You, you do not do this, Right. Because the goat's just going to be dangling. And it's going to be frustrating to the ox. Right? And eventually the ox is just going to smash that thing on something in order to free itself from the thing that it's unequally yoked to. Add to it, 
in the language is the, uh, the idea of opposite directions. So not only have you got the 2,500-pound ox in the yoke, he's headed north. You've put the goat in headed south. Opposite direction. That's the picture Paul is painting. Your, your brain is automatically supposed to go, that would be absurd. Well, what are you going to do? Hook them up to the, you know, plow and head out into the field this way? I mean, who gets to walk frontwards at this point? You know what I'm saying? It's a terrible concept. Okay, which which way do you want to put? Oh, you know, Christians, you know, trying to make them look stronger. Maybe we're actually saying that the unbeliever is stronger, represented by the ox. And that the Christian has to constantly be backing up and making the compromise and looking over their shoulder in the process. This is a cruel thing, right? I mean, if you literally saw somebody out in the field doing this to some poor animal, I hope your heart would be like, that guy is crazy and cruel. And there's a number of things you could make an assumption about who would do that to these animals? Just maybe, you know, I don't know, animal welfare programs need to get involved or something. So it is with the image. This is what the Lord is saying. You cannot put these people together this way. It does not work. It's cruel. It's cruel to do this. It always ends up badly. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers again notice the imperative command do not for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness right i mean full-on criminal outlaw hanging out with sweet little church girl something bad's gonna happen right or vice versa you know, whichever one you want to make, somebody's going to get hurt in the process. Somebody's reputation is going to get damaged. Somebody's going to be living a very frustrated life, right? Heaven, you know, uh, uh, marriage can be heaven on earth. It really can, right? It can, it can also, you don't have to raise your hand. It can also be hell on earth, can't it? It can be hell on earth. The Lord does not want this. Marriage is supposed to be representative of his relationship with humanity. He does not want any set of human beings to live a tortured state of existence. It would be better for them not to be together, for the unbeliever to find an unbeliever and find whatever satisfaction and fulfillment in that relationship they could. The Lord doesn't want them coupled together in this torturous way. What communion has light with darkness? Right? Light is always going to extinguish darkness. You, know, you guys know that you can see a candle in the open air five miles away? Right? Five miles away, you can see a burning candle. If there's no obstruction between you and the candle's flame, you can see it for five miles. Think about how far the stars are. Right? Thousands, millions of light years, you can see their radiance here on Earth. Light always dispels the darkness. Light is going to push the darkness out of its atmosphere. Right now, oh, we love one another. We're bound together. There's going to come a point where the light repels 
the other person away. Everybody loses their mind when they fall in love, right? There's no, you can't, I mean, it's insane, right? You know, single guy doing his thing, you know, just bad hygiene, bad spending habits, bad everything, you know, and then they, oh, they've fallen in love and they show up and they're wearing the same t-shirt and sitting next to one another, you know, nobody else is even in the room with them as far as they're concerned. They can only think about this person. You can't, you can't judge the situation based upon your ability to reason. People say that all the time. You got to trust your heart. Are you kidding? I've quoted my pastor many times. He was the first that I heard say, look, if anybody on planet Earth had ever lied to me as much as I have lied to me, I would have nothing to do with them. We easily deceive ourselves. Consider here, light dispels the darkness. What accord, what agreement has Christ with Belial, the devil? Like Christ and the devil are going to sit down and say, oh, look, you know, there's been a lot of differences between us, but let's just negotiate. Let's talk like make your case and I'll make my case and we'll find some kind of common ground. Absolutely not. No accord between Christ and Belial or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols. Oh, well, you know, here at our church, you know, we have our Christian services in the morning, but, you know, later in the afternoon, the Buddhists show up and do their thing. And then, you know, if you really want to get into the darkness, come around this evening. The Satanists do their rituals. It's, you know, more so he's talking about our physical frame because this is the temple of God. Well, in the morning, I'm a Christian, but by 9.30 at night, you know, I'm sacrificing chickens in the backyard. Got to worship those devils. I mean, it's, it's humorous, and you would, you know, if you saw it, you'd be offended. You're in church with somebody here this morning, they're raising their hands, singing, praising the Lord, and, and then you literally see them worshiping the devil in their backyard. It's clearly wrong. This, this is the association that the Holy Spirit, let's be clear about that, that the Holy Spirit is making through Paul. Believers and unbelievers should not be married. The, the contrast is this broad. You know, what, what uh, agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The concept is separate, but not isolated. We, we do interact. We are supposed to. God makes all kinds of provision for let the unbelievers come into your nation. They have to convert to the nation's religion. They're welcome to come in as long as they honor what you're doing. 
Maybe their heart isn't even given over, but their behavior, their practices must match your practices. Check all your idols at the border. Don't come across with any of your idolatrous worship. God has an open border policy in allowing people in, but no other gods make it through the door. That's his process. Contact, but not contaminated, is what he says. Right? In the world, but not of it. How else is the world going to know? Right? We need to go in amongst them. We need to go and preach. We need to share the gospel with them. The Lord wants us to have it, but not to the point of compromise. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, looking at verse 5. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. Listen, <clears throat> you would have wanted to anyway, right? It isn't just idolatry, you guys. Their, their symbols were sexual, right? You, you wouldn't want the kids just driving by and being able to see this. It's got to be done away with. It's got to be gotten rid of. Today, we're not called to physically destroy these things. The problem is the church has become acceptant of it and embracing of it and allowing of it. We need to stand up in very firm opposition to these things. You know, this whole gender expression nonsense that is going on in our culture, it is, I mean, it's frustrating to us, but I got to tell you, it's your responsibility, my responsibility to put it to an end. We, we have to stand up and physically physically oppose these things. It, it, you know, they act like, oh, it's a harmless, you know, expression. Well, that'd be one thing if we didn't know. Okay? If if we were like, well, we've never tried this before, so let's just sort of roll with the punches and see how it turns out. No, no. Other nations have already done this before us. England and Europe have already been through the courses on this. We've already run all the trials here in the nation we need to, to know the violence that comes against the innocents in our culture. You let, how about this? Pride Magazine, 2003. I, I, made, I made this quote, I got emails People angry with me because I didn't say where it came from. Pride Magazine 2003 said that domestic violence uh, amongst male homosexuals was 30% higher than any other coupled rating. 30% higher, the occasions of violence. A and men being violent with men resulted in death more frequently than in any other setting. Because uh, a man can subdue a woman very quickly. But a man fighting a man can retaliate 
And so the violence escalates and death is commonly the result. Yeah, the occasions where they're allowing men, and, and let's just be clear, our culture's confused about do we call them a woman? Do we call them he? Do we call them she? Okay, men dressing up like women and using women's bathrooms and changing rooms. And by the way, if you're not familiar with it, Target is promoting this. No, no, I don't mean allowing it. They're promoting it. They're inviting people to come in and use their changing rooms, to use their bathrooms. They're making public proclamations to the transgender community to come over here and you inviting the opportunity. Family Research Council, American Family Association, you should have their publications coming to your email regularly. Right, Target is keeping it very quiet the number of occasions where men have assaulted children and women in those bathrooms and in those changing rooms, but it is happening frequently, frequently, until we make our politicians make those changes, it's going to continue to go on, right? Jesus said you're salt and light. Salt and light. Jesus wasn't telling us that we add flavor to the situation. Salt is a preservative. And up until the early 1900s, it was the most prominent form of antiseptic used in every single medical setting. Salt. Salt solutions and raw salt. Today we say, oh, it's like putting salt in the wound. Back in the day, that was said as a compliment, right? In the same settings, when a friend would say to you, hey, you're messing up, cut that out. The statement was, well, that was like putting salt in the wound, okay? And it was said with humility, meaning I got something in my life that's bad, infectious, and my friend just pointed it out in such a way that it stung, but it cured the problem. On the battlefield through World War I and in World War II, the soldiers carried salt packets for wounds. Just rip it open, pour the salt in. Prevent the infection. Refrigeration, unheard of in Jesus' day. Salt solution in water. Bathe your meat in it, hang it to dry, right? A lot of beef jerky everywhere you went in your culture. Salt prevented the decay. That's what Jesus was saying. Yeah, sure, you lend savor taste, but you preserve from the decay. You keep the rot from occurring. And then what did Jesus say? If salt loses its savor, what good is it? What good is it? The church has lost its savor. It is no longer fighting back. It is no longer demanding that those politicians that we have elected continue to do the bidding of the people. Vote them into office and then they just go do whatever they want to do. Collect their pension for the rest of their lives. Don't do anything to preserve our culture. Listen, it is their fault, but the greater fault lies on our shoulders. 
Because we haven't in the church insistently taught this to the church and then behaved this way as the church. Uh, I'm uh, a long ways away from Washington. Really? You know where a lot of this fight's happening right now? It's on your local school board. That's where it's a, lo a lot of it's happening, right? Colleen was just sharing with us some things that her grandson was sent from the public school that were so outrageous, I wanted to go choke somebody. The things they're sending home to these kids, polluting their minds, polluting their hearts, were called to be combative against this. Listen, do not load your gun, right? Don't learn how to make Molotov cocktails. Christ isn't calling you to violence, but he is calling you to resistance. The voice needs to be heard. The statements need to be made. If we stand by and we allow our culture to sweep, then the judgment has to come to us because we've joined the corruption. What's that old statement about all it takes for evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing, right? We have to stand up. We have to voice our opinion. Listen, that, that may be simply at your kitchen table, right? Your relatives. Oh, I just don't like to stir up problems. We have those family gatherings. I want things to be peaceful. You're letting the corruption take place. Things need to be said. Maybe what you plant in their heart, they're going to take back to their school system and say something. Our culture is already lost. You know, I'll, I'll leave that one alone. I can, I can go too far sometimes. Maybe you've noticed that. <clears throat> no? Okay, pray for me. Verse 6, for you are holy. Listen, not holier than thou, not self-righteous, not some kind of hypocrite. You're holy, right? Meaning you have a singular purpose. As a 20-something-year-old husband, I had to be taught. Butter knives are not screwdrivers. It was news to me. It really was. And I rebelled against it. Until my wife pointed out, yeah, that little nick on your lip you just got from the end of that butter knife you just licked off is because you've used it as a screwdriver. Knucklehead. You know, you own a screwdriver. Take five more seconds and go get it. Right? Holiness means there is a singular purpose for. One purpose. We are a holy people meant for, meant to worship God. Doesn't mean that you're arrogant. Doesn't mean that you're self-righteous. Doesn't mean that you're a hypocrite. It means you have one purpose. And that's to worship God. And as that one purpose works in your life, you will be salt and light. And you will put an end to these idolatrous things in your community. It will be a natural response as to who you are spiritually. You're holy is what the Lord says. For you are holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure. 
This is part of the reason I say it's so amazing that God likes us. We know he has to love us. God is love. So therefore he loves us. You know, you do that, right? Certain people, well, I got to love them. Don't really like them. But I love them. That's not God's attitude. God's attitude is that he likes you and he loves you. Isn't it great that God is not human? What a horrible thing that would be. We'd all been gone so long ago, right? He'd have smoked us if just gotten rid of the whole problem. We're a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number or better looking or more gifted or funnier or a better speaker. You know, he didn't choose you because of your qualities. In fact, quite the opposite. He said, there's a loser. I'll use that one right there. No one will believe the things I'm going to do through this person. Everyone who witnesses what I do through this person will be astonished. Because they'll recognize it has to be God. It couldn't be them. Look at them. That's, that's literally what the Lord is saying. If you don't like that, if that's insultive to you, you probably think too much of yourself. God is literally looking for those who are incapable so that his qualities, his attributes shine through. When, when you're irresponsible and he creates responsibility in you, he gets the glory. Right? When you're untalented and you do something that's talent-filled, he gets the glory. God is the one. When you're disobedient by nature and you obey him, and you perform his will, God gets the glory. Right? Everybody's left standing around going, is that really the person I used to know? What happened? The Lord gets his glory. Not because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you. Because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage. Now it says, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But what was the bondage Christ freed you from? Right? It might have just been uh, selfish ambition. Maybe you were completely business-minded and you were all about your own career. And now Christ is doing something different in you. You have been delivered. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Thank God that God keeps the promises. Right? Because we couldn't possibly do it. We would have failed. At some critical point, we would have failed. Something that we would have done, just being obedient. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, if you're thinking, oh, good Lord, I've read the commandments. 
we had 10 of them in Exodus chapter 20, and then you got the entire book of Leviticus, and now here we are in Deuteronomy, and then you add to that everything the Jews deciphered from it, and you got 635 separate laws that they developed out of it, and then over a thousand measures, and then all of the different judgments. Now, what in the world am I going to do? Jesus knows how dumb I am. So he simplified the program down to two commandments, right? You know what they are. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How many times have you heard me say, if you will learn to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, right? Jesus said, you know, you will automatically love your neighbor as yourself, and on these two hang all of the law and the prophets. What are you going to find in the scripture? Some regular, I'm doing that. How? By loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind. Well, I messed up pretty bad yesterday. I was in the flesh, got angry, spouted off. That's why the grace of God is necessary. Amen. Because he has saved us and we keep his commandments, but we live in this flesh. So we're going to have shortcomings. And our shortcomings are met by his grace. And if you just said, good, so I'm going to just go screw up. Be careful of that behavior, right? Self-deception is clearly defined in the scripture. Paul tells us very blatantly, what then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? We haven't been freed to sin. We've been freed from sin. We've been delivered out of it. Verse 10. He repays those who hate him to their face. And destroys them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. This is the idea that the one who hates God, when the punishment comes, is not going to be saying to himself, why is this happening? They're going to know in their heart, this is because I have been a rebel all my life. <laughs> no. Come do jail ministry with me sometime. And by the way, I, I sent out the notice. Uh, we were finally able to do an online study this week, and four guys showed up. So, you know, this, this is the third time we've restarted it since 2003, different circumstances. In 2003, when I started doing jail ministry, two guys showed up. Following week, four guys showed up, then eight, then 16, then, you know, there's only 28 guys. In the jail, when you've got 20, 22 of them showing up, I mean, praise God, right? So this time we started with four. We'll see where we go from here. I think that we'll end up in a similar place as we have the previous two times. So continue to pray. I talk to those inmates and they say they're honest, right? They're sober. That helps, right? When you meet them on the streets and you're trying to talk to them about how Christ could work in their life and save them, you're talking through a really dense fog, hard to communicate with that mind. But once they've detoxed a little bit and you can get through some of the sludge, they hear what you're saying. And they know what you're saying is the truth. Right? Well, where's the fruit? Interestingly enough, I've had a few conversations in the past year 
that show me there is actually a great deal of fruit. Ran into a guy uh, going in to pick up milk at the Irving and calls me out, Pastor Will, and I stop. I don't remember his name, just his face, and we talked for a few minutes. And he said, man, I got out of jail three years ago. Got out of jail. I've been going to my uncle's church ever since. Didn't come here, right? That's where I'm looking for the fruit. We preach to them. You think they show up here. But they're from all over Hancock County, right? So they go home, and I've had that conversation a few times now. Where I got back with my family, I started going to church. Again, there is fruit for our effort. It's a great blessing in the process. I'll repay them to their face. A little bit more, guys. Hang with me. Verse 11. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments. So all three things. The raw commandment, the statue, how the broader application is, and the judgment if it's violated what are you supposed to do in reaction to it? Which I command you today to observe them. Verse 12, then it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them. The Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. Our whole judicial system is based upon Moses' laws from the scripture. Right? Whether people... Uh, realize, oh, well, this wasn't a Christian nation and they have all of that argument. Okay, I'm not going to argue that point, okay? But here's the deal. Without question, this nation was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. They weren't founded on Muslim ethics or Buddhist ethics. They were founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. And our law was founded on Judeo-Christian law. Right now critical race theory and all these things that are permeating our culture and people are talking about, you know, social justice. Okay, you got to understand how dangerous that is. People are literally shifting our colleges, our schools of law over to social justice. We, we have a justice system, right? Some of, some of us went to school for criminal justice, Right? We went to school and learned law and how to apply it. Now, social justice, this is an oversimplification, but they're literally now in those schools teaching social justice. And if you're like, well, you know, what's a big deal? Change with the times. Social justice. Okay, you were mad, smashed somebody in the head with a rock and killed them. We don't look at the law anymore and say, what does the law say about that? We look at you and say, why did you do that? Well, when I was a kid, my dad used to throw me down the stairs. So I've just gotten in the habit of throwing other people down the stairs. And now I get really filled with rage and anger and I just smash that guy in the head with a rock and, you know, something wrong with me. And they say, well, okay, based upon all of that, we're not going to send you to jail. We're going to put you into this program and you'll be counseled and tutored and taught and we'll unlearn those things from you so you don't behave that way anymore. That's social justice. Social justice doesn't look at the law. It looks at society and what it is produced in the individual and it pronounces the judgment based upon that, not upon the law. I'm oversimplifying it, but that's where our culture is at. 
It isn't just that's how people talk in the supermarket, you guys. This is what the colleges are now doing. What do you think that's going to produce in our culture? What, what do you think is going to happen? Oh, the jails are overwhelmed. They need to be. Our culture is filled with criminals and violence. We've celebrated it for decades, and now here we sit. If you keep these laws, these statutes, these judgments, then I will perform the promises that I've given to you. If not, and you shift over to some other system, God help you all. And that's where we are right now, falling apart. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments, keep them, do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and mercy which he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your land, your grain, your new wine, your oil. Increase your cattle and your offspring and your flock and the land which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall be not be a male or a female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Also, you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall not have pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. The destruction that the nation of Israel experienced is lying ahead of us right now. Lying ahead of us right now. He even lays it out here, right? The fertility of your land and you as a people will be based upon your obedience to me. There are huge questions about the behavior of this nation and what it's resulting in. I'm, you might want to just read some of the studies regarding food sources and fertility. Really remarkable what uh, the Lord promises right there that we are seeing the negative results of in our own culture and everybody's standing around scratching their heads saying, what happened? Rebellion against God. Verse 17, if you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I. How can I dispossess them? I'm a Christian, but I've got this addiction. I just can't get rid of this thing. Dominates my life and I want it gone. You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. The great trial which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. Hornets are nasty creatures, are they not? Man, bees are bad enough. Hornet will get you over and over again. They don't stop. Crawl right into the places 
where these people hide themselves and root them out so that they can be done with them. The Lord will send supernatural circumstances to deliver you. You shall not be uh, terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. And the Lord will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be uh, unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become numerous, too numerous for you. God does not want, okay, think of this in a spiritual sense. God doesn't want to just purge out the heathen because other bad things take over. You've got to be there in presence to conquer and then occupy. Right? You can't just go to the school board and say, I've noticed this terrible thing and you've got to get rid of this. You've got to go over and say, I've noticed this terrible thing, and that's why I want to be on the school board. Because I want to get rid of this, and I want to be here to make sure no other terrible thing like this ends up in here. we got to go to the city, the town council. we got to town selectmen. we got to get involved. It's, it's so easy. Is our culture not designed around comfort and ease? Lack of involvement? Let somebody else do that. Just stay out of it. We need to be involved in what the Lord is putting out in front of us. Little by little, you'll be unable to destroy them at once. All at once is the idea. Lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. He will deliver their kings into your hand and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. You shall burn the carved images of their God with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourself lest you be be snared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And I'll say one more time. Envy, covetousness, mammon, materialism is widely accepted in the church. It's encouraged. Oh, drug addiction, we've got to get rid of that. Alcoholism, adultery, pornography, let's get all that stuff. But prosperity, we preach that from the pulpit. Desiring these things is as destructive as anything else. The Lord specifically even says that the desire for it in your heart is destructive. Just having, you know, you never even achieve it. Just desiring it will destroy you. Just wanting it. Consider what the Lord is saying. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house. Lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it. For it is an accursed thing. The television. Just vile. Vile what comes through. It's amazing. And man, don't they have an agenda? It's just crazy. The stuff. You know, still to this day, right? They say 10% of the population is homosexual. The real numbers say it hasn't reached 3% yet. 
Right now, it still hasn't reached 3%, according to the real studies, right? The homosexual population wants you to think that, oh, it's growing fast. It isn't growing as fast as they imply. It's certainly permeating our culture. You know how much a percentage of entertainment television now all day, not just nighttime television, you know how much of the population on television is homosexual? 64%. We're, we're less than 3% in reality, and yet in the entertainment industry, they display it as though 64%. We're, we're, we're running into the place where now as many as three of the main characters of a program are living transgender or homosexual lifestyles. Three, three of the main characters. You know, it, it is literally as you are experiencing. You're not so isolated from your culture that you aren't experiencing reality, right? Even as a Christian, what you are experiencing. So how many homosexual people do you know personally? That's the reality that you live in. There is a militant agenda to push this in our culture. And, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. What was God's command to Adam and Eve? Go into the world, subdue the world, conquer it, make it yours, make it yield to you the benefits, and then what else? What was the second portion of the commandment? Multiply. Fill the world. Oh, overpopulation. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? Now there's 7 billion people on the planet. You can still fit the world's population inside Texas. Everybody gets 1,268 square feet of their own. That's not a huge square to live inside. But you can fit the whole population of planet Earth inside Texas. There are population problems in New York, Los Angeles, and Hong Kong. <clears throat> and that's just because they all want to live inside one square mile. Same space. Right? Drive through the Midwest. Stare at cornfields for just hours. Hours and hours and hours of wide open space. All over the planet. Right? There's, there's not a population problem. That is a full-on, bold-faced lie. Right? Our enemy, right, wants to kill the human race. All of it. Not one, all of it. Wipe out God's creation. That's his goal. He's destined for hell. He knows it. There is no hope of redemption for him. So if he's going to hell, everybody's going with him. That's his plan. So create within the culture the inability to reproduce. Homosexuality has no offspring. It doesn't produce children. Our culture has a militant attitude against family, right? By the way, Abigail Valeric, preparing to have child number three. Yeah. We're excited. We're excited. Procreation, God's plan. Rebel against God's plan, destruction. That's what you end up, God's plan being destroyed. Salt and light is what you are. 
make sure that this message, this message right here, you're hearing in your heart, that you are accomplishing it. Oppose. You don't have to get red in the face mad and start spitting and yelling. You can just, you can just declare the truth. Just speak the truth to the culture that's around you very lovingly. Invite them to church. Invite them into the family of God, right? Is the parade thing going on today in the park? Yeah. So was that Knowlton Park? Where are they meeting? Knowlton, yeah. Head down there. If you're a nice person, if you're a jerk, stay at home and pray. You know? Seriously, I mean both of those things. Pray that we would win hearts over, that we would see people delivered from the same bondage you were in. Sin. Yours was a different brand. They have a particular brand. So what? Share Christ with them. Be salt and light to the world. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, again, we thank you for your love and your work in our lives, and we pray that you would minister to us, Lord. We desperately need the strength of your Holy Spirit to see these things accomplished. Lord, especially that we would be knowledgeable, loving, and balanced in the process. We, we tend to move to the flesh, move to arrogance, move to hypocrisy. Lord, we don't want to be like that. We want to be like you. We want to say the things that need to be said in a loving way that invites people into your kingdom. Use us as your servants. We are ambassadors. Your representatives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.